Hello and welcome to the BGS English Revision podcast. Um, I am Miss Yemenakis and today I'm very lucky to be sharing the podcast with um, Isla Reevely, one of our English scholars. Hello. Um, so today we are going to be looking at a passage-based question um, from Othello, which is for your um, IGCSE literature um, paper three. Just a couple of little reminders of things that you will already know, which is that you have 45 minutes for the exam question um, in the Othello um, paper, and it is a separate paper on its own. And also, very importantly, you are allowed to take your own paper copy of the um, text into the exam, um, which is really useful. So one of the first things to do when you go in and you look at the passage-based question, if you are going to do the passage-based question, is to find the extract in your copy of the text and have it open in front of you, because that will allow you to see what exactly where it is in the scene, because it won't be a whole scene. Think about what happens before and afterwards. And also, there are some notes and things in the margin as well that you might find helpful. So that's just a little bit of um, housekeeping stuff. Um, there's another little practical thing, which is the way they organise it, which sometimes trips people up, is that you will have the extract and the question is always right at the bottom of the extract, closely followed by the whole text question. So don't get the two of those um, confused. Um, it also will always tell you whereabouts in the play the extract is from. Um, and this is an extract from right at the beginning of the play uh, in Act 1, Scene 1. Um, and um, Isla, would you like to tell um, Year 11 what the question is to go with this extract? Um, no, the, the actual question. Just, just there. Right. How does Shakespeare present Iago at this moment in the play? Yeah, just sort of, before we start um, cracking on with the thesis statement and um, talking about the passage in more detail, um, as you probably know by now, um, CIE have a tendency to give some quite open-ended questions. This one is a little bit more focused, and it's asking you to look at Iago particularly, but you may well get the kind of question that just says, how does Shakespeare make this a striking and powerful or exciting and interesting moment in the play? And if you get one of those, you really are doing the same things, which is just a kind of detailed analysis of what is happening um, in this extract, what's interesting about it, looking at the language um, and structure and linking it to other moments in the play. Um, so we're going to kick off um, and Isla is going to read us the um, thesis statement or introduction um, that we have written for this question. Obviously, yours, yours doesn't have to be identical, but it gives you an idea of the kinds of things that you want to put in there. Yeah, so... In this extract from very early on in the play, Shakespeare immediately presents Iago as a Machiavellian and duplicitous character whose visceral hatred for Othello is reflected in his base and racist language and the way in which he ensures that Brabantio is given the news in a way that will cause maximum dramatic impact. Just before this extract, Iago has made his frustration at losing his promotion to Cassio clear and his use of Rodrigo to further his own ends is another aspect of his duplicity and all the facets of Iago's villainy, misogyny, racism and a sense of real enjoyment in the chaos that he causes are evident in this moment. Brilliant, thank you. Um, have you got any thoughts about writing introductions? Because I, I often find it's a thing that people find more difficult than I expect them to. I wonder if you had any tips for Year I mean, 11 on that. I think it's just important to sort of briefly outline what you're going to be talking about. And if yeah. you do outline it, it's important that you mention it later. And if you don't, take it out of your introduction. Yeah. So 
if you're going to talk about him as a Machiavelli and make sure you make that a real point yeah. in your essay. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think particularly if we're focusing on the passage-based question as well, what you want to do is show an awareness of... Um, the significant, what's the most important thing that happens in the extract is really what you want to be thinking about. And here it's in terms of the way Iago is presented. And you want to do a little bit of contextualising. If you get an extract from Act Scene 3, scene three for example, um, when Iago's been working on Othello, um, you're going to be saying something different than if you've got a bit from, you know, um, Act 5, mm -hmm. when um, Othello is about to murder Desdemona. So it's about contextualising without just spending time explaining exactly what's happening you don't want to story tell but you want to use the contextualizing to say what makes it a particularly interesting um, moment in the text and you'll see from that thesis statement um, we've used some of the words that we might associate with Iago like Machiavellian and so on um, but we've also kind of said what characterizes that scene um, and there's a glossary there's a downloadable sheet that goes with this that has the extract and um, our arguments and some bullet points, and it also has a vocab list if there are any words um, that you might not understand. Um, we reckon that it is a really good idea to structure your essay roughly in kind of three chunks so that you're moving on to talk about slightly different things. They don't necessarily have to be the same as the ones that I've done here, um, but um, they're what we're going to use to structure our talk today. So um, having done our thesis, we're going to think about the first um, thing that we're interested in, which is um, Iago, both in this extract, which is very early on in the play, and um, kind of what happens later on, about how we see Iago as an active agent um, of chaos. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, Isla, I wonder if you had some thoughts about that. As an agent of chaos? Yeah. Um... Yeah, so he kind of, as a Machiavel, he controls the scene and he kind of hold the le holds the levers of power. Um, he also kind of, it's almost theatrical, the way that he takes control. It's very entertaining and compelling. He clearly enjoys his schemes. He takes enjoyment <laughs> in controlling everyone else. Um, and we had the, um, what was it? The, uh, the imperatives, so rouse him, proclaim him, plague him, call him up. He takes power and he influences the other characters as the, author as the authoritative role. Yeah, and I think that's really, really important. Um, it, it's interesting that in Iago, uh, in Iago, in Othello, the protagonist, see, that was, a, that was a slip that there's actually a reason for. Um, you know, although it is the tragedy of Othello and Othello is the tragic protagonist, actually, interestingly... Um, and there is some an academic who's actually counted the number of lines that everybody has in Shakespeare plays. Um, Iago has more lines than Othello, and it's Iago who drives the plot of the entire play. Everything that happens mm. is as a response to um, Iago's motivations and plotting and planning, and I think that is um, quite an important thing to think about in terms of how he's being set up in this scene and what happens later on. And yes, what you say about the kind of imperatives, he's always kind of rousing... Um, people to action as well the enjoyment thing i think is interesting yeah. you know that sense that he it's he's not just doing it to get revenge he actually takes <laughs> pleasure in thinking about the suffering and misery that he's going to cause and that that quotation in the extra you know i'm going to poison his delight and there are other moments in the play where a similar kind of thing happens how do you think that affects our relationship with him as an audience we sort of become like complicit in his actions I think we we are like unwillingly entertained by it we're kind of drawn to him um it's almost inevitable because he's such an interesting character we're just drawn to the darker side and especially because he's surrounded by these 
characters that are almost lesser than him, they're more ignorant than him. Yeah. He kind of shines. Absolutely, um, and we'll talk about, in a second, we'll move on to talk about the relationship between Iago and Rodrigo, but I think that, that point that Isla's making about our relationship with Iago, obviously Shakespeare makes great use of dramatic irony in Othello, and we, we see everything that, Othello, uh, that Iago is saying and thinking in a way that other characters don't. I mean, the question of whether we believe that he believes and is telling the audience the truth when he's speaking soliloquies mm. um, is something perhaps to consider, but he's really enjoyable to watch. He's active, his language language is fizzing with energy and excitement um, and if we compare that to Othello who even when he's speaking very eloquently um, is um, lacks that kind of excitement and energy of um, Iago it means that we're slightly torn as an audience aren't we we kind of want Iago to be on stage and doing all the things he's doing even while we're aware that what he's doing is um, absolutely appalling um, okay let's move on to the second point which is that in this scene and obviously in the in the um that's how the play opens as well as in, in mid-conversation with um, Iago and Rodrigo. Um, the dynamic between Iago and Rodrigo is one that Shakespeare makes quite a lot of use of throughout the play, um, even though Rodrigo himself is not one of the most interesting characters um, in the play. So I just wondered if you had some thoughts about, um, in this extract in the play as a whole, how that dynamic works. Yeah, well, Iago kind of repeatedly capitalises on Rodrigo's like naivety, um, he kind of commodifies him in a way. He uses him as the, what was it, the cat's paw yeah. to, to carry out an unpleasant task. He sees him only as having instrumental value. Um, and it also just makes his manipulation more impressive because Absolutely. we see him from the very beginning of the play manipulating someone who sees him as a friend. I mean, Rodrigo's kind of a walking purse, really, isn't he? In the um, Lawrence <laughs> Fishburne. That's actually a phrase that he uses. <laughs> he, yeah, he does. Thus do I ever make my fool my purse. But there's, if you watch the Lawrence Fishburne um, film version, which some of you might have watched in class, um, the, there's a bit at the end of Act 1, Scene 3, when they're just about to go off to um, Cyprus, where Rodrigo yet again is persuaded by Iago that even though um, Desdemona has just made it very clear in front of everybody that she's madly in love with Othello and she's going to go to Cyprus with him, that it's worth him coming along to Cyprus because there might be some chance for him. So Rodrigo is kind of one of the comic elements of this play, really, because he's a fool, he's a gull, he's mm. completely naive. So it's very easy for Iago to manipulate him, even though Iago's um, able to kind of manipulate um, everybody. So, yeah, he uses him for financial gain, but he's actually really important in terms of the plot um, that um, Iago uses him throughout, not just for money, but to actually um, uh, create the fight so that Cassio loses his promotion um, and so on um, all the way through the play. So I think if we're thinking about this extra, it's definitely worth looking at how Rodrigo and Niago kind of work in tandem. I don't know if you noticed anything particularly from the from the extract there about the, the different ways in, in which they function and the difference in their language, perhaps. Yeah, well, again, with the imperatives, I mean, his language is far more, like, direct and authoritative. And also, he takes control very quickly after asking Rodrigo to do Niago it. Niago does, yeah. <laughs> why, why do you think he does that? Because, I mean, again, you could almost, because we're quite early on in the play, you, you can play that for humour if you, yeah. if, as, an, as a director or an actor, if you wanted to. Yeah, well, it makes the levels of power clear, and it's kind of just showing how, compared to Rodrigo, who's a bit useless in this extract, especially at the beginning, Iago immediately takes control and just exercise like executes his yeah what isn't what isn't rodrigo achieving that iago wants to happen he's not sort of taunting brabantio yeah the extent that iago wants absolutely (laughs) because if you look at actually what brabantio says when he realizes it's rodrigo he's like oh 
you know, not you again. You've been kind of, you know, you've been coming around my house kind of, you know, with your tongue hanging out after my daughter. Yeah. And I've told you to go away. So if you have a look at, um, if you have a look at, we haven't got line numbers on this extract, no. unfortunately, but um, he says, um, I have charged thee not to haunt about my doors. In honest plainness, thou hast heard me say, my daughter is not for thee. Um, so Brabantio is not in the least bit discomforted by Rodrigo, is he? He's, he's mm. able to sort of slap him down quite easily. And actually, if you look at what happens to Rodrigo when Brabantio kind of goes on the offensive, which I think is where you know, Iago decides he needs to step in. I mean, what happens mm. to Rodrigo's language there? Sir, sir, yeah. sir. Yeah, <laughs> it's like he can't even really Pitiful. speak, can he? So um, Iago has to kind of, you know, take over because at this point, Brabantio seems quite in control, doesn't he? And it's when Iago comes in that things start changing. So I think, um, you know, kind of exam tip there is that obviously your focus on the passage based question is going to be mostly on the passage, but it is really helpful to kind of comment on, you know, Rodrigo's function in the play and yeah. how he's kind of used later on um, as well. And the contrast of his language um, to Iago's. Um, because the minute Iago starts taunting Brabantio, mm. um, it becomes quickly much more effective. Um, uh, and we also know that Iago's improvising in this scene. Yes. He was planning on Rodrigo taking the lead, so yeah. it introduces him as an improviser. Yeah, and absolutely, and that's an important um, point to make. You know what you were saying earlier of him as a kind of Machiavelli. One yeah. of the things that Machiavels are really good at is that they don't just have a set plan. Mm. They kind of, you know, they, they know people's strengths and weaknesses and they deal with the situation as it arises um, and they kind of capitalise on that. Um, and that's one of the things that makes um, Iago so effective is language and his ability to manipulate um, and also that. Um, I want to move on to the um, third kind of point, which in lots of ways is, is the most significant one, I think, um, in this scene, particularly if we're thinking about the you know, the establishment of the character of Iago. And again, yeah. because this is in Act 1, Scene 1, even though it's not right from the very beginning, I think it's important to make it clear to the examiner that you're aware that this is, you know, this scene is the first time that we've met Iago. And also that we meet him before Othello, so that any attitudes that we have to Othello are kind of filtered through Iago's yeah. um, perspective. But the, the third point was really... Um, you know, what is kind of revealed about um, Iago's racism um, and attitude to Othello and his hatred to Othello, how we see that through the language and also perhaps we can have a little kind of conversation about, you know, where we think that stems from because Iago gives us various reasons but um, I think most of you in class when you've discussed it may well agree that they don't entirely add up. His motivations. Yes. It's sort of purely incidental. It seems like he's just hates him for the sake of hatred almost. I mean, he does, just before this extract happens, I mean, he does have one concrete reason, he does, doesn't he? With Which is more jealousy about his position and also his wife. Yes. I, I think, the, you know, the, um, the fact that he hasn't been given the promotion that he wants, I mean, there are some critics who would argue that actually we shouldn't underestimate that. And if you've been a soldier in the field with your general for mm. a long time and you're passed over for somebody of kind of, you know, greater wealth, higher status, more educated, less experience, then that actually is a reason um, to harbour some hatred. But I still don't think it really explains no. the depths <laughs> of the hatred that he has. The, for... the lengths that he goes to yes, after this. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, let's think about the language um, in the extract. You know, once, mm -hmm. once Iago kind of takes over from Rodrigo, 
um, you know, it's, it's Iago's language that creates that sense of urgency and chaos and that means that Brabantio goes running out into the streets um, ready to fight Othello in the next scene. So are there any particular words or phrases that really struck you as showing that aspect of Iago? Well, I think a really important one is an old, bra- an old black ram is topping your white hue because it introduces some animalistic language that Iago actually uses a lot for the rest of the play. Um, it's one of the things that he uses a lot when he's talking about Othello. Yeah. A way to sort of dehumanise him, disrespect him. Interestingly, he doesn't actually use Othello's name in this extract at all, which is no. definitely something you can mention. Yes. He only refers to him in that sort of yeah. best The more when he's sense. being polite, um, yeah. <laughs> thick lips, which he says mm. earlier on. Um, yeah, and I think that's that's a really good point. I mean, one of the things in this extract that hopefully you'll notice if you can annotate it is that there is a lot of that kind of bestial language, animal imagery, which exactly as Isla says, dehumanises Othello and Desdemona. But I think also what it does in this extract it is, you know, he picks the language that he knows is designed to make the maximum impact on Brabantio as a kind of, you know, Jacobean father mm. who is just this minute finding out. And remember, it's the middle of the night and that's important as well um that his daughter has eloped he had no idea about this he has no wife this is his only child so he has lost it's very everything. bold of him he's very like audacious with his language yes with because brabantio is you know sort of a respected figure absolutely he, he is has no he is thing. a he is a um you know uh, iago is just a soldier you know and a, and a reasonably lowly one at that whereas brabantio is kind of quite high status but if we go back to that quotation that you um chose in the black ram and the white you i think that's quite an interesting one to unpick because not only does it have the animal imagery and it's it's old black ram as well and othello's age is something that becomes important later yeah. on in the play doesn't it as part of his insecurities um but you've got as well as the animals um, and he uses lots of words that are to do with animals mating, tupping, um, and so on. Um, you've got the cu- kind of colour contrast, and I yeah. wonder why, what you thought we could say about that. We can say colour psychology, we think white, we think purity. So he's just trying to sort of emphasise this kind of unnatural relationship, yes. really terrible relationship. Absolutely. Again, but, to just engage with Brabantia. Yeah, and, and it reminds us, of course, as well, doesn't it, that, um, you know, of the, the kind of difference between Desdemona and Othello which again is one of the reasons that I think Iago's poison is effective that you know Othello although he comes from noble siege and is a general he is an outsider to Venice isn't he Mm -hmm. Um, he's older he's black all of those things Um, and so that kind of juxtaposition of black and white and the kind of connotations that are connected to that kind of quite a stark way of reminding um, Brabantio Um, I think in some ways that the kind of most shocking thing to Brabantio is that um, image of the beast with two backs. Mm. Um, and if you look at where he says that, he says, um, I'll find it myself mm. now. Um, yes, um, I am one, sir, that comes to tell you your daughter and the moor are now making the beast with two backs. Mm. I don't know if you spotted, but he uses now quite a lot. Um, in this extract, he says he says now, very now. So it's kind of creating that sense of urgency yeah. that Brabantio's got to do something right now, this minute. If he waits any longer, who knows what's going to happen? Mm. Um, yes, actually, sorry, it's, it's near the beginning of the extract, just after Brabantio's appeared. Iago says, "Even now, now, very now, an old black ram is topping your white you." Yeah. So it's in that bit there. So it's not just the juxtaposition of the ram and the you. The verb topping, which again is an animal mating verb 
but they um if you think about the rhythms of the they even now comma now comma very now it's like it's right. happening right now this minute while you're standing there in your nightshirt you need to do something about it yeah um yeah, what do you think about that beast with two backs um, metaphor image? Making the relationship sound like monstrous almost. It's, it's yes. almost the worst kind of metaphor that he uses. It is, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, even on a very basic level, I remember saying this to my class, you know, no father really wants to think about his daughter having sex with anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so given that Brabantio doesn't even know about the relationship and the elopement and so on, Othello is just putting it in the most base way possible that is designed to upset Brabantio. Um, and again, notice the alliteration, which makes the effect even stronger, and the fact we've got more animal imagery, beast. Um, mm. There's quite an interesting thing happening as well with the um, kind of whole notion... He takes it beyond just that, and he thinks of the kind of outcome of this coupling, which might be, you know, the children that Desdemona and Othello might have in the future. And I wondered if you had any thoughts about how Shakespeare presents that in this moment. Presents it as something really shocking, which in this time it would be. Yes. Which is really important, because, again, to Brabantio, that would just make it seem all the more um, extreme. Yeah. He needs to stop right away. Absolutely. And the alliteration thing you touched on, is actually used later with the courses for cousins, um, nephews, nay. Yeah. And I thought the alliteration is almost playful. So again, showing his like relish in uh, what he's doing. I think so. I think there's always the sense with Iago, who's doing it for his own motivations and yeah. reasons, which are never made entirely clear. But then he almost gets kind of carried away with his own language when he starts having fun with it, doesn't he? But I think that alliteration does kind of emphasise that, you know, uh, Brabantio's grandchildren are going to be this kind of, you know, almost kind of comedic kind of animal creatures that, that he's not yeah. going to recognise, that are going to be alien, that he's not going to be able to speak to. Um, but I, I agree, I think that kind of playfulness with language and with situation and with plot is a really important part of what makes Siago so successful but also what makes him so kind of appealing um for um an audience um so um we're kind of beginning to run out of time all we've done really is their touch on some key points um so I think it is important that you go back and have a look at the extract yourselves um and kind of look at the sort of comments that we've made there are some bullet points there that you might find helpful as well I think just before we kind of talk about things you might touch on in your conclusion Ira, I just wondered if you had any thoughts about if we go back to that kind of question of Iago's motivation about whether whether you have any thoughts about what you think it is that really drives him I mean he's sort of his his immorality his or amorality I suppose it would be with a Machiavel he seems to um have a kind of twisted perception of what is good and bad or at the very least mm. he just has a complete disdain for it he takes he he like we were saying, he takes enjoyment in his actions. So for me, although you did say he does have some sort of motivation, I think it's almost an excuse. Yes, absolutely. He harm. has certain motivations that we might understand. You know, he's been um, he's been overlooked for promotion. He thinks Othello's been sleeping with his wife, although we're never really convinced he thinks that. Mm. But I think you're right. I think they kind of are excuses. And an interesting thing that you knew, little snippet you might find useful is the, the source material that Shakespeare got this story from, because he didn't make up his own stories, although he played around with them. In the original one, Iago was actually in love with Desdemona, and that was the reason for him doing the things that he did, which I think Shakespeare felt was too straightforward and yeah. uninteresting motivation. So he gives us a character. And um, I don't know if you remember the end of the play, but once Iago's actually been unveiled, can you remember what he does? No. 
when he's in the final scene, he refuses to speak. He says, I'm not going to say anything now. So he never explains himself. You know, Othello in his final soliloquy explains why he did what he did. He goes, right, I'm not going to say any more now. That's no. it. I'm not speaking. Do so he feels he has to? No, no. Or maybe he can't. <laughs> maybe. Um, but anyway, in terms of the conclusion, mm-hmm. um, I think you just need to um, think about... Um, how Iago makes such a powerful impression on the audience from the very beginning of the play, and particularly how he does it in this extract that we've got here. Um, I think we touched on some of the things earlier that you may want to put in your conclusion that Isla was talking about, about our our relationship with Iago, because this is a play, and you need to remember to talk about it as drama. Elsewhere in the play, we have the soliloquies that allow us to have a relationship with him, and we do enjoy him as an audience. We look forward to him being on stage, and that might cause a certain kind of tension, given his amorality and the things... Um, he does and this extract although it's very early on really has um, many of the hallmarks of Iago's character that lead to the tragic conclusion at the end of the play Um, so that's where we're going to leave you